Welcome to Neurotransmissions, neuroscience stories from the lab and life, by scientists, for everyone. Your hosts today are Drs. Misha Smirnov, Joe Schumacher, and Ben Schultz. Okay, episode three, we're here to talk with Nobel laureate Eric Betzig. We Actually, talked. We already talked to him. That's um, right. I like to focus on the problems of everything I do because I feel focusing on the problems instead of pushing them under the rug is, is exactly what you need to spark the creativity that's going to lead to the next step. Pretty interesting. Uh, <coughs> okay, actually, wait, 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 one wait. of the most interesting conversations I've ever had with somebody, I have to say. Yeah. Because I did not expect a Nobel Prize winner to be so down on being a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> He's, uh, he, he tells it like it is. Yeah. And uh, I think it's going to give people a pretty interesting perspective on what it's like to have a successful scientific career, quit, and then have a second successful scientific career and get a Nobel Prize. Um, I think at one point of the episode, you asked him, uh, so, you know, what's the plan for the second Nobel Prize? Yeah, and he got mad. He essentially <laughs> called you an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you don't do science for Nobel Prizes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so, yeah, kind of uh, interesting character, this guy. Um, what are you most excited about? In this interview. Well, one thing I'm really excited about is figuring out whether or not Engineer Miguel is going to bleep out all the swear words. <laughs> because, right. I mean, people might not think of this about scientists because we have such great demeanors, but there's a lot of F-bombs in science. Um, there's a lot of frustration, and sometimes you just have to get it out with words. So this may be a PG-13 episode. It, we it, don't know yet. We we'll don't see, know yet. We'll see how it is. We'll find out on the day Probably that it Probably might, might release two versions yeah, maybe. <laughs> and and uh, one for neurotransmissions after dark, and one for <laughs> all right. Well, Sunday let's, morning. Let's talk a little bit about about what he actually uh, what he actually did. Yeah, what what actually Prize what winner. actually happened during the discussion? What did he get the Nobel Prize for? How about that? Well, super resolution microscopy or super resolved fluorescence microscopy. But interestingly, uh, the, he got the Nobel Prize for chemistry, right? He did get the prize for chemistry. Uh, I don't think we have been able to find a really good reason for why necessarily it was chemistry. And that, not physics. And, and not physics, not biology. But technically, chemistry is certainly involved, even though this is a very wide-spanning application and, uh, and tool, technique that he has. Right. And uh, part of the, the whole reason why this thing is cool is that uh, it uses some tricks to get beyond what's called the diffraction limit of light. And Misha, you're an optics person. Maybe you can describe to people what exactly is. Your, <laughs> the smile on your face is growing, and the, you can tell the wheels in your head are turning. So what is the diffraction limit of light? The wheels in my head are turning because I'm trying to figure out how to display, explain the diffraction limit, uh, which I only really feel like I began to understood, understand fairly recently uh, in, a short, in a short little blurb. But well, let's let's start with what what is the size of an object at the diffraction limit? Well, right. So certainly, uh, uh, so essentially, the idea of the diffraction limit is that theoretically, you using just regular waves of light, no matter how much you zoom in, no matter how awesome your objective is, you can't see past a certain point. So that point is just under a micron, around, you know, uh, the, the size of the actual light waves that you're trying to detect, right? A light wave can be something around 500 nanometers. That's, that's within the range of our visible light. 
And, and this all depends like also on the wavelength of the light that you're using too. Is the diffraction limit the same for the all? The diffraction wavelength? limit is not exactly the same. So uh, a light wave that is 600 nanometers will have slightly lower resolution than a light wave that is 300 nanometers, right? But um, it essentially means that when we get much smaller than that, if you really want to see an object that is 100 nanometers, you can't really do that, uh, at least not with regular um, a regular sort of objectives, regular optics, regular microscopes. So, but so maybe this is where the chemistry component comes in because at some point we break down biology. I mean, we study neuroscience, right? So we we span sort of uh, a huge multitude of areas of science from from you know perception and and, and psychophysics all the way down to neurotransmitters, single molecules, even using EM like. Uh, we talked with like, like we talked with Jeff Flickman, mm -hmm, right? Yeah. And at some point, you kind of draw the line and you say, "Well, you're not really studying necessarily biology anymore. You're studying chemistry because you're studying you're actually being able to visualize individual individual molecules. molecules. You're looking at the interactions of proteins and not huge protein complexes or millions of proteins working in a cell. So right. that's the level that we're getting down to. It's like Biology is essentially at its root chemistry, which is essentially at its root physics, which is essentially at its root math or something yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. That's like the right. Conceptual. So let's version. talk a little bit about how he actually got past the diffraction limit. How was he able to see things that are super, super small? How can he identify uh, where an individual molecule is in a cell? Is that an individual molecule? <laughs> Misha's pointing to a spot on the table for those <laughs> at home. Um, so he, this is something I think that his work uh, was moving towards since he was in graduate school, and he talks a little bit about this in the interview, um, he used both in his career, both near field and wide field microscopy techniques. Um, and I think the way that he breaks the diffraction limit with what he calls palm or photo activated something, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Should have Wikipedia <laughs> in front of you there. Yeah, uh, we're gonna take I, a I Wikipedia break and we'll be yeah, right back. Well, I, I think basically he came up with a kind of interesting trick that uh, took advantage of new fluorescent proteins that had just come out, like photoactivatable GFP, which is a, a version of green fluorescent protein that is activated by light. Is that right, Misha? <laughs> That's right. It's activated by light. And he took advantage of proteins that are activated very quickly. Um, and I think we'll talk, we'll talk more about that later uh, as we're discussing it with him as well. So uh, why don't we just dive right into the interview and when these heavy concepts uh, come up, we'll step in and clear the air. Sounds good. Today we are talking with Dr. Eric Betzig. He's a group leader at HHMI's Janelia Research Campus. Dr. Betzig, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so I guess we can start off with uh, talking a little bit about how you got to where you are. I mean, uh, what was graduate school like for you? And after graduate school, what was your uh, trajectory? Where did you go? So uh, grad school was, uh, for me, at Cornell. And uh, I went there with the vague idea that I wanted to do experimental science, um, but I really didn't know what. Um, and uh, I looked around and, and everything seemed pretty pedestrian except for one crazy project that a couple guys had, um, Mike Isaacson and Aaron Lewis. 
So um, they thought Mike was an electron microscopist, and he had found a way of turning the electron microscope around to drill holes in a metal film that were 30 nanometers big. And he and Aaron, and Aaron was a Raman spectroscopist, they figured that if you could take that sheet with that hole and place it up against a cell, they could put light on one side of that screen and out from the other side would come a 30 nanometer little dot of light and you could drive that around and get an image. That sounded cool, okay. So that project was in the early stages um, and so I said, yeah, I wanna do that one. And, um, and grad school was fun. I mean, the first couple of years, there was another student, Alec Haratunian, who was on the project as well and we started working with these electron beam made holes and it was a major pain in the ass. Um, they are in a 50 nanometer thick substrate so if you look at them the wrong way they break and, and so forth. So that was hard and it would take months to get a new one when one broke. And it cost, you know, basically we had no money for the first couple of years. And it's good as a grad student to live in poverty for part of the time. So <laughs> It's can, part of the fun, I think. Yeah, exactly. You, you basically learn how to do things when you don't have anything, right? And that's a useful skill to get. And then a couple of years in, we got a big grant, and then you're on the other side of it where now you, know, you can let a little more of your imagination run wild with, with money. Um, but eventually, necessity became the mother of invention with those aperture rays because... Um, Alec had learned about a new hot thing the neuroscientists had come up with called patch clamping. And so we realized that we could take a patch clamp pipette and coat it with metal and get our little hole that way. And those were cheap and easy to make. And then we abandoned the electron microscope and went and did that. And then we were kind of off to the races. So Alec graduated. I built this crazy elaborate microscope with the money we finally had. Um, got some initial results, which were, today I'm embarrassed about them, but at the time I was proud of them. And, um, and that was enough to then get me my own degree, and then I went to Bell Labs after that. Yeah, so I'm really interested to hear about your time at Bell Labs. Um, my grandfather and grandmother lived on Glenside Road, which is like right across right. the street. Uh -huh. So every time I would visit them, uh -huh. my grandfather would talk about he made it seem very mysterious. Like there was all sorts of like <laughs> crazy like area, area fifty one <laughs> And I thought it was a telephone company. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but there was a really like thriving neuroscience community and uh, a microscopy community. Yes. Why did a telephone company have well, this going? Well, uh, I mean, Bell went through many incarnations over the years. So everything you said was part of Bell. <laughs> okay, so. In the 40s and 50s, it had a great many defense contracts, you know, particularly during World War II, and had a major role in radar and other things like that. And of course, in 47, they invented the transistor, and in the early 60s, they were heavily involved in lasers and, uh, and so forth. So, you know, it had this very storied history. But what really funded it in the 70s and so forth was the fact that it was a phone company. And so the phone company had a monopoly then. And so uh, everybody's long distance bills basically funded that institution. And AT&T wanted to maintain that monopoly and because there was always pressure to break up that monopoly because it was huge. 
and um, having something like Bell Labs is basically goodwill, you know, so they, they needed a, a, a high-profile money sink in order to justify their monopoly. In the end, though, in 84, they broke up the monopoly, and then, um, and then all of a sudden the financial underpinnings of the company is going to get uh, swept away, and it takes a while, right? Um, and so uh, when I joined in 88, it was still very much a, uh, you know, uh, a haven for anything goes. Um, and so that was the era when we were really starting to get heavily involved in neuroscience with Dave Tank and Winfried Dank and guys like that. Um, and, uh, and they were, you know, would entertain the notion of hiring a guy like me, building a microscope to see beyond the diffraction limit. I was hired in the semiconductor physics research department, and I knew nothing about semiconductors, but that was the nature of the beast. You know, they were just looking, they were always looking for, you know, whoever looks like they have the potential to be the best no matter what. So when I was there, we had Tony Tyson studying dark matter in the galaxy, Andy Millis trapping antimatter in magnetic bottles, um, Horse doing fractional quantum Hall effect, um, all sorts of semiconductor physics, you know, uh, single electron transistors, etc. My buddy Harold, who I worked with, was doing um, uh, scanning tunneling microscopy of millikelvin temperatures to look at superconductors, so it was all over the place. Um, and then uh, it was great, and, and, uh, um, and so I started working on my microscope there. Two years in, um, I had made very incremental progress from what was a pretty incremental, icky thing to begin with by the time I left Cornell. And I told um, my boss, Horst, that uh, if I didn't have a breakthrough in number, another, another year, he wouldn't have to fire me because I'd quit. <laughs> <laughs> so, but in that third year is when I had a breakthrough with some a, a fiber idea to deliver the light to the tip. And, and then uh, that became sort of the, the real heyday of, the first heyday of super resolution microscopy um, with this near field technique that, that I developed. Yeah. Is this the first time that you managed to beat the diffraction limit? Yes. Okay. So at uh, room temperature, you, that was a yes. Big well, well, yeah. And and first, uh, you know, at Cornell, we poked a little bit beyond, just enough to see features that were just beyond the diffraction limit that you couldn't see. But when when I finally had that breakthrough at Bell, we could really push it down to say, you know, about you know the fiftieth of the wavelength of light. So we were really we were able to get down. And then it was like, you know, throwing, what can we do with this and doing all sorts of things. So one time we had the world record for data storage density. Um, and one time, uh, you know, I did the first imaging of the cytoskeleton beyond the diffraction limit by fluorescence then. And, and you know, uh, WE shared the Nobel with me, had seen single molecules at near absolute zero, but with near field it was pretty easy to see them at room temperature. And, there was a number of things and you know, one science paper after another every six months for three years or something, right? Okay, so let's let's take a break from the interview for a second and just like recap. Everything's going pretty well for him at this point in his career. He's he, he went to grad school, he had a great project. He was working on uh, I don't know how much of that you caught, right? He had he was trying to break the diffraction limit his whole career. He was essentially trying to look through a really uh, small hole. At uh, while it moved across an image, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and once, he 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 was 
essentially doing this to see features of, of structures that weren't really visible unless you went beyond the diffraction limit. And he was starting to be able to do that. In fact, he was able to do this he once was he was able at to do Bell, it, yeah. Bell Labs. And he was surrounded by all these incredible things, something antimatter in a bottle and dark matter. And <laughs> things like, that we don't always uh, that, understand because these are the heading uh, people heading their fields working on the most crazy parts of their fields because that was the beautiful thing in places like... Uh, places like Bell Labs, where you have a lot of money and a lot of freedom. Yeah, stuff right? that's like super intense, and I'm I'm content not knowing anything about it and just right. acknowledging that it's probably super cool. But and uh, towards the end, he starts mentioning how this was creating science paper after paper after paper. Having developed a technique or been at the forefront of the developing of a technique, you obviously know all of the limitations. You know the pros and the cons. Being... A sideline scientist who's like, oh, I want to totally do that. I'm just and just going and running and, and doing it, and the hundreds of people that did that, uh, they may not have really considered all of the pros and cons or the limitations as thoroughly as he did as he had to to develop the technique. And he takes that pretty personally. And but I, I also think it's just very refreshing to hear somebody talk about this problem in science very honestly. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's his privilege as somebody who has a Nobel Prize and can say what, I, what, he, what he thinks. Um, but uh, let's get back to him and have him really discuss how this a aspect of science gets him down in the dumps. Yep. By 93, um, I was really uh, at the end of my rope. Um, and uh, part of that was uh, that uh, I've learned over the years that science goes through continual fads, you know, where first nobody believes in what you're doing, then all of a sudden everybody believes in what you're doing and everybody's trying to do better than you and everybody basically claims the moon is made of green cheese and, and the standards of the field go right into the crapper and, and, uh, and, uh, and I, you've, I really felt like I got to the point where every good result I had was just providing the justification for a hundred pieces of that would get published mm. in its wake and that it was a waste of time and a waste of the taxpayers money and everything I had done was a net negative to society because of that oh my gosh because Nearfield had really strong limitations particularly that you can only see about the top 20 nanometers of the sample and if the sample isn't super flat you can't even get the probe close enough to see that 20 nanometers <laughs> so screw it right so you found an interesting technique, and then you felt like everybody was wasting their time thinking that it's going to solve every problem. Right, right. And when I would scream to the high hills, it's got this problem, this problem, this problem, people would say, no, no, no. And then, you know, people showed this demonstration. But no, this is what you're really seeing. This is what you think you're seeing, but I'll tell you what you're really seeing. It's not that. What you're seeing is an artifact because, because of the topography of the sample. It has nothing to do with an optical contrast. On and on and on. And at some point, I just said, screw it, I just can't deal with that. And then the other issue was how much Bell had changed. Because again, by 93, that breakup in 84 was being felt. Um, when I joined in 88, um, a year in, when I was still having trouble, another PI came to me and said, you know, what you're doing is technology development. But the only thing that matters here is how many FizzRev letter papers you publish. And so you would better start thinking about what you're going to do to do real basic physics with this thing because otherwise you're going to get tossed up. Um, and then by 92, so that was 89, 92, 
when I had the data storage result, the vice president of research gives a talk once a year, sort of a State of the Union address. I was the poster child of the kind of applied research we should all aspire <laughs> to do. By 94, my buddy Harold, who is the best scientist I have ever known bar none and the greatest experimentalist I've ever known, was assigned the project of trying to figure out how to use spectroscopy to figure out which fruit was in the supermarket um, cart so that they wouldn't have to put those little four-digit stamps on it. <laughs> oh, my God. This is a big culture change. Okay. So, so all of that, you know, I mean, sick of near field, seeing that, you know, they're not going to be able to support the kind of stuff they did. And then the third thing was, you know, just how hard it was to succeed there. I mean, I just worked myself to the bone, you know, I mean, Eighty hundred hour weeks, you know, it's crazy level of work, um, and but you feel like you need to because of, the, you know, you you go in there and you feel like you're on probation because it's got fifty years of history with the transistor and the laser, and how are you going to measure up, you know? So you 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 feel like this is your one shot. You need to give it everything. So so, so it's you, burned out. You, it's burned out. That's burned out. Basically, yeah. what it comes uh -huh. down to. Because I I know from hearing you speak before that. Uh -huh. At some point, it, it was very exciting. You were like trying to beat your friend to work. You right, were like, exactly. you know, yeah. try to Earl figure and out. I, right. Yeah. Uh huh. It was great. But then you uh -huh. get to the end of your rope, and you just uh -huh. like can't yeah. enjoy it anymore. Right. Right. You you, you become dis. You know, a you're physically exhausted, but b you see that it's not going to be valued by the company, and c you see the thing that I've been working on for the last twelve years is basically a technological dead end. All of that combined is the perfect storm. To say, you know, I'm done with this. Okay. Yeah. So, you're done with this. You drop out. You sort of like say goodbye, academia. Right. Um, and where do you go at that point? Yeah. Uh, immediately nowhere. I, I I knew I always had a backup plan because because uh, my dad had a successful machine tool company in Michigan that he started in '85 and was growing like a weed. The 90s was the boom era for the big, the last boom era for the big three because this was when all the baby boomers were buying minivans and stuff and so they were printing money. So his company was growing like crazy and and compared to what was happening at Bell, that looked pretty impressive. So uh, um, got into that um, eventually, um, you know, consulted for a little bit. Tried to wash near field out of my brain as much as possible. But when you do something for that long, the circuits are hardwired for a while, and it takes a while for them to re rewire in other directions. And so you start thinking about something else and, and keep getting trapped back into the same thought patterns. But Were you <clears throat> like kind of keeping one corner of your eye out on like what your colleagues were doing and at that time no I knew I didn't want to do academic science so I, I after I left in 93 I didn't really need a single paper you know hmm. um, except for one exception and that was when I had the idea for Palm so it was only a few months after I left that I realized that you could combine the single molecule imaging I did with near field with this experiment Harold and I did to to see multiple points of excitation inside of a quantum well near absolute zero, even in the same spot because they were in different wavelengths. And I realized that if you can combine those ideas and somehow, if there were a bunch of dense molecules in your biological sample, if somehow they differed from one another so that you could look at them one at a time, 
then you could find their centers and then determine their positions and build up an image. So, so I was really excited about that idea for a couple months and I quickly published a little theory paper about it and it's a good thing I did because that was one of the two papers the committee cited in giving me the prize. But um, uh, I almost didn't publish it just because I was like, I'm done with it, but I figured I'd get that idea out there. And, um, and then I went to work for my dad and uh, did that for seven years and uh, very different world, very different. Um, but but also doing some like tech development? Yeah, so basically he gave me free run. I mean, I've been extremely lucky that wherever I've gone, people have given me pretty much carte blanche to do what I want. So uh, that was certainly true pretty much in grad school, Bell working for my dad, certainly working on my own, and then Janelia. And um, so I was VP of R&D, which means me and eventually one other guy. And uh, um, I first worked on a um, system to inspect the parts that would come off these. He, his company would build these very large customized machines that would run 24-7 to produce like a brake caliper or an intake manifold for a car. They have to be extremely robust. And the volumes are huge, like a million parts per year off of one machine. So one part every 30 seconds all the time. And, um, and they couldn't, they had no technology to inspect the quality of these parts on every one because inspecting one would take hours when they're coming off every 30 seconds. So I figured out a way of putting cameras around the part as it comes off the machine and actually use the same sub-pixel localization algorithms that I eventually used in Palm to find out the positions of these holes. And, um, and then I could inspect every, every part. And we put the first one into the, into the field, and what it immediately starts doing is it starts rejecting every part that comes off the machine because <laughs> they're out of tolerance. <laughs> so what, does, what, does the, what do you do in that situation? You turn off the machine, turn off the part <laughs> inspection machine. But so, you also found a really you know, low tolerance uh, way of inspecting things which must yeah. help later on. Well, yeah, but it's, again, it's, it, it was basically they knew that no parts are ever in the tolerances they give because they seriously over-tolerance the parts. Bottom line is if the damn thing bolts together in the end they're happy and they knew that they, they over-tolerance the level they did that it would, that they bolt together, right? And, but in theory they should be meeting this very tight spec and they didn't and so that's what the thing was doing. So, but they needed the parts much more than they needed parts at that tolerance, so it's just easier to turn off them. So that's a year down the toilet. And then, then I said, okay, well, okay, inspection is not the path to glory and riches in this field. So, so clearly what they want is they want high productivity, right? So I figured out a way of, um, basically you can think of a machine tool um, as you know, one direction of motion, one translation axis on top of another, like three axes. So it's like the three stages of a rocket, right? And so the top one has to be moved by the second one, and the bottom one has to move both the top ones, plus the payload, which is the drills and the tools. And so um, it's very much like a rocket. And just like a rocket, um, pretty soon you're lifting nothing but fuel. All right. In this case, you're lifting nothing but the, the stages themselves and the motors that drive them instead of the drills that you want. Most of the weight is in that crap. 
and so it's very slow. And so I realized that you could take, instead of electric drives, a much older technology based on hydraulics and marry it to modern principles of, of control technology and get that to be fast and accurate, which it never was before. But because a hydraulic motor that's 100 horsepower will fit in the palm of your hand. So it means that the whole machine, it's like a super potent rocket fuel and the whole machine collapses in size. Then it's stiffer, it can take more aggressive cuts, it's a lot cheaper. Um, it's a win-win-win-win-win all the way around. And so I spent three years developing that. Then we started trying to sell it. And um, whenever a customer would come in, it would move so fast. It would move a meter in 100 milliseconds, moving a four-ton load. Okay, So it was like a hummingbird, <laughs> very big hummingbird. And, uh, um, and it scared the shit out of all the customers. <laughs> so nobody wanted to buy it because it was just too risky. And so, again, it was like another, another film. And that's when I, I basically said, you know, I'm just, I can't, I'm not good at this business. And so that's when I quit that. So that was in 2003. Um, and when did, the, when, did, <clears throat> when did the bug bite you again? Uh, well, I, I decided, you know, Harold and I were, were around 2002, started communicating again. He had gone to work for a disk drive company in, in, San, Jose, in San Diego after, um, after uh, Bell continued to implode. And, um, and so uh, we started just talking again because we were always best friends and, and um, uh, sort of decided, both of us, that there's so many constraints working in business. I mean, it's fun, but you know, you have to make something that's cost-effective, that's safe, that's well-documented, um, that lies within the laws of physics, that's incredibly reliable um, in order to have any shot at all. Whereas, you know, in in science, you know, if if the experiment repeats once, you you publish. <laughs> but but you know, if the machine doesn't repeat ten to the six times without fault, it's no good. You know, so it puts much more constraints on what you can do. Um, and just we both missed the curiosity of science, so we started trying to think about stuff. So I said, "All right, I want to get back in science. I better start looking at the literature." And one of the first things I saw was green fluorescent protein, and that had come out a decade before. But I had left science a year before Chalfie's paper came out, so my my timing was really bad. All right, so Chalfie, by the way, that he's talking about here is uh, Marty Chalfie. He's a professor at Columbia who outlined in this paper how green fluorescent protein, GFP, could be uh, used as a marker for gene expression. So, so it's a protein that actually came from a fluorescent jellyfish. Yeah. Right? And now what we can do is we can take this protein, put it into cells, animals, whatever we want, and those things light up. Yeah, and so he reads this and is fascinated by it, and it actually spurs on the development of PALM, this technique that he uses to uh, do super-resolution microscopy. Um, but when I read it, I, I was just astounded by how beautiful and elegant GFP was, because when I tried to look at the actin cytoskeleton with Nearfield back in the early 90s, I used phalloidin, which was the best thing available, but antibodies were hopeless, and, and the th 
thought that you could just coax the cell to produce a fluorescent handle and it could be done in a live cell. I knew I had to get back into microscopy because of that. Um, and so I came up with this idea that would interfere um, laser beams from different directions to make a massively multifocal 3D um, pattern that I could try to use to do extremely high-speed volumetric live imaging of cells. And so um, I started trying to go around to see, you know, who's going to hire me to do this because I haven't published a paper in 10 years. You know, I was, you know, off the radar. And, um, and uh, of course, I wanted to get Harold to do it with me, so I was trying to sell Harold. But Harold wasn't completely convinced of the idea, and even if he were convinced of the idea, he's proud like I am, and he said it would be chewing my cud if he came <laughs> to work on that idea, <laughs> and he wanted his own cud to chew on. So, um, so uh, one of the places we went, though, was one of our old Bell Labs buddies. One thing that's been hugely helpful for me to get back into science was the fact that I was at Bell, and so when there was that diaspora after Bell imploded, there were really good people in positions of power who knew me personally everywhere around the country. And I was able to pull on all of those connections as needed to get back into things. And one of those was this guy, Greg Bobinger, who's now head of the National Magnetic Field Lab in Tallahassee. He had been trying to hire Harold for a long time. Um, and Harold had learned about this guy, Mike Davidson, there, who um, was doing... Um, uh, uh, he made a bunch of money by selling neckties and printed with cocktail mixes, and he used that to fund his own lab to do live cell imaging. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, and, and, that, and to do live cell imaging, he, he hired an army of undergrads, and they made, you know, cloned 3,500 different plasmids of fluorescent protein fusions over time. And from him, we learned about a new type of fluorescent protein that would switch on and off under light that it was called photoactivatable fluorescent proteins. And so, uh, um, and so for, you know, Harold and I were in the airport and it was, you know, the light bulb popped on and we just started jumping around <laughs> excitedly saying, you know that paper I published 10 years earlier on turning on the molecules somehow or isolating them and then this is going to do it and this is going to do it easy, you know, this is going to be easy. Uh, and so we dropped my multifocal microscope idea and and now, because we had joint intellectual ownership of that, we're chewing the same cud, and and we and we just jump right on that. And so, uh, um, Harold, uh, when he left Bell, um, was able to take all of his equipment with him, and so that gave us some start. And then we put some of our own money into it, and then so we built that palm microscope in his living room. And we went from the idea of palm to having all the data in our science paper in six months. So it went from nothing to basically the Nobel Prize, I think, in six months span in that period. So super easy. It was, it was, it, I mean, the other thing was, you know, I mean, we, we were back in bell mode of, 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 you know, working like crazy, right? So uh, uh, we were working around the clock during that period. I remember in an initial discussion with Mike, he said, well, um, we'll transiently transfect the cell. And I was like, what the? Does transient transfusion? <laughs> I have no idea. Can you explain that? And so, uh, um, so we needed help, you know. So again, Bell Labs comes through again because in order to sell that multifocal microscope, I had 
I had talked to Rob Tico, who was at Bell, and he invited me down there to give a talk, and I was hoping to get interest in it there. But um, once we went to Florida State, you know, my agenda changed. I was no, in, no longer interested in a job at NIH. But I gave the talk, and I begged him to ask Jennifer Lippincott Schwartz and George Patterson to come to the talk, because they invented this PAGFP. And they came to the talk, and I said, can I take you guys out to lunch? This is a pretty important lunch. Uh, he's got a lot riding on this because he needs this photoactivatable form of the GFP in order to get his uh, his palm idea to work. So what's this? What's special about photoactivatable? Yeah. GFP? So let's we have to step back a second and 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 ex describe exactly sort of what the problem is, is here and what the solution that has presented itself to him. And the problem is that you can take GFP. And you can transfect into cells. Basically, you can get cells to express this protein. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a cell that has GFP, it's just chock full of it. It's super bright. It's you can't super green. tell where a specific protein, a specific molecule is, except for a general area. Well, the, right, yeah, because so the, everything is glowing. The main problem being that if you have a cell completely chock full of fluorescent proteins, you're not going to be able to do super resolution microscopy. It's, it's going to be very difficult. You're not going to resolve one molecule from another. Yeah, you're not going to be able to get to that chemical sort of levels and looking at single molecules. And what he thought is, what if we turn on only one molecule at a time right. instead so, of a million? And so if you, if you transfect this photoactivable GFP into cells and you fill them up with it, and you look at that under a microscope, initially there's nothing. It's just dark because none of these GFP molecules... Are, are actually activated yet, and they have to be activated by uh, a different, a specific kind of light. And so, yeah, so you, you could use this to activate like one or two or, you know, 10 and be able to only image a select number, a few number at any time. So essentially using a trick where instead of the appropriate laser that you shine onto it where it would light up, you shine almost kind of like the wrong color laser onto a very poorly performing molecule. Uh, and since only a certain amount of them will flicker once at a time, when you have the flicker, the flicker is still going to be big. But when you have only one flicker from one molecule at a time, you can realize that even though we have this big ball of light, the molecule is right in the center of it. Right, and that's why it's called photoactivatable localization microscopy, because the, the goal is to photoactivate a single molecule, figure out its location, and then microscopy it. <laughs> so let's get back to Eric. Great job, Joe. Yeah, that's my contribution. So let's get back to him talking about this this uh, situation. So they went to lunch with me, told him the you know, heralds of my idea, and 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 Jennifer said that sounds exciting. And so uh, and so uh, uh, once we had her on board, um, once we had the instrument built, we took it to her lab, and then George did all the transfections and. And Rashid did all the correlative VM, and uh, and Jennifer was there for anything else we needed, and so uh, we pulled together this team, you know, and and really that that team was from the idea to having the whole team together was probably a two week interval because I went right from Florida State and then back to NIH, and so it was like you know I, I'm not a religious man, but somehow the stars aligned in a very brief <laughs> interval of time. But so, I mean, for all that to happen. You know? And, and you, you pulled this together uh, fairly quickly. And, you know, when you're coming out of not being in science for a pretty long time, uh, and you have this very kind of forward thinking idea, this thing that you're going to build together, 
but like you said, this is a very big personal investment. I mean, you're building this all by yourself. Uh, was there, were you afraid? Was there a fear of this is going to get scooped or this is going to, it isn't going to work? We were afraid of getting scooped for sure because we figured that our, our first thought was, why the f hasn't anybody done this already? Right, right? absolutely. I mean, it, it just seems so obvious, you know. I mean, these proteins had been around on the scene for several years and it's like, why hasn't anybody done this? Um, and so that was a fear, but the fear of, of failing or the fear of spending the money, that wasn't it at all. To us, Harold describes it as, look, we put 25K each of our own money into it, right? But he said, look, you'll spend more money than that renovating your bathroom, okay? And this is a hell of a lot more fun than renovating your bathroom, <laughs> right? So, so, you know, I mean, we would, we would find a way to, you know, he was single, but, you know, I had a family. We would find a way to support our families in the end. But the way, another way I thought of it is I'm just stealing from some retirement dollars of some future time for right. now. I'm doing a little bit of retirement now, and if it means I need to extend my retirement, you know, somewhere farther in the future as a result of the money I'm spending now, so be it, right? Yeah. So, so future me can help me out right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's great. So um, when did Janelia come into the, the picture? Oh, gee, in exactly the same time. 2005, spring of 2005 was the luckiest time of my life um, because, remember, I was trying to sell that idea of this multifocal microscope before I went to Florida State. Well, the first talk I gave right before Florida State was at Columbia, and it was because of Bell Labs, right? So I called up Horst Stormer, my, my, the guy who hired me at, at Bell, and said, Horst, I want to get back into science. I have this idea. I don't know what to do because I've been out of science for so long. Horst won the Nobel in 98 for fractional formal, and he, said, and he went to Columbia after that. And he said, well... Why don't you come to Columbia to give a talk? But if this is something you're going to use for biology, don't give it in the physics department, give it in biology. So Rafa Yusta, who was also then at Bell, became my host and um, in biology. And I gave this talk, and I'm sure nobody in that room understood what the I was talking about. <laughs> but at the very end, I said it would be this much less toxic, this much faster, this much whatever than a spinning disc. And so they kind of got that message a little bit. And... You know, usually at the end of an academic day, they take you out to dinner, right? And so I had with me Mike Sheets and Marty Chalfie in the cab with me. And Marty turns to me and says, well, that was an interesting idea. So how do you expect to get back in the lab? And I said, I have no idea, but um, I read in Physics Today last November that there's some guy named Jerry Rubin who wants to create a biological Bell Labs. And I thought that Bell Labs was the best time I've ever had, and if there was some way of getting in a place like that, that would be awesome. And Marty said something like, well, maybe after you reestablish and prove yourself, something like that would be... I figured he was crushing me beneath the scale. <laughs> but then two weeks later, I got a call from Jerry saying, I met Marty Chalfie at a party, and he said, you might be interested in Janelia. And I said, might be? So this, this I got the call from Jerry, like, the week... So, you know, first one week, we go... First week, we, I give the talk at Columbia. Next week, I give the talk at, or I go to Florida State with Harold, learn about and come up with the idea for Palm. Week after that, go to NIH, meet with Jennifer, set up our plan for how we're going to do Palm. Week after that, I get the call from Jerry, and he says, are you interested in Janelia? <laughs> when does that happen? It's, yeah, it's rags to riches, right? I mean, just like overnight. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
So how's your, uh, what is your feeling that now that Genelia is established and is a very kind of working environment, is it like Bell Labs? Uh, in some ways it is and in some ways it isn't. Um, you know, I mean, I owe Jerry for everything, you know, and I love, I love Genelia. It's a great environment. I'm able to keep a very small group. Um, I honestly think that between the fact that we're able to focus 100% on research and because I have no pressure to form a big group, I really feel that I work at an unfair competitive advantage compared to every, all my peers in academia. Um, I really think people are trapped into this big group model, which is not good, um, and this, what they have to do to support that model, it just dis distracts them from the sort of really focused creative thought necessary to do good science. Um, so uh, um, I still have that ability at Genelia and I cherish that. But at the same time, it isn't as exciting to me personally as Bell was because the advantage of Bell was they really believed in small groups. You could never have more than one technician or one postdoc no matter who you were. Everybody had the same. And so that meant they could afford to fund a hundred PIs in one corridor. So I told you the diversity of projects that were going on. And there was no overarching goal or purpose other than to do cool science. That was it. And so every paper I wrote there had a different set of collaborators, right? So this is why my near-field papers, you know, involve single molecules, you know, cell biology, data storage, semiconductor spectroscopy, everything, because there were all these people I could work with within the same building. And, you know, to me, science is stochastic, you know. It, the idea of saying, we are going to understand a fly brain in 20 years, whatever that understanding means, and I don't even think that's well-defined, right? But, um, but I think that if you have no focus or a very broad focus, then you're able to pull in the best people across many disciplines. You don't limit the talent pool to, I'm only going to hire system neuroscientists or whatever. And you're not placing all your money on something that may or may not be at a level of technical refinement to get to the goal you want in the time that you want, right? Whereas, you know, if you don't set any agenda, then you just let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> so I would like to see the reconstruction of something like Bell. Maybe not so physical science is heavy because I feel that, you know, physics is, you know, much a very mature field, but good God, biology and this, just we don't we know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's so complicated and so messy, you know. Yeah. But it really requires so many disciplines to make progress, you know. All those disciplines should be in one building, right? But so what uh, about Genelia? I mean, what is it that creates uh, more sort of um, conceptual goals? Like you're saying that you do really have projects where you're working towards something, as opposed to uh, the I, yeah. I, again, I, I I think there's a shared interest of most of the people at Genelia to really understand neural circuits, to really understand the connection between from genetics to development to you know the anatomy to the function to then the behavior, right? And understand that whole thing soup to nuts, right? And I think that's sort of the vision people have. Um, the systems are really complicated though, right? And uh, there's a limited number of people and, and there's other problems, you know. Uh, um, I mean, this is a little, not so much of a problem at Bell because, because 
it had so much history. Um, everybody felt like their head was on a chopping block at Bell, right? You felt like you had to continue to produce at a very high level or you'd be out. And you had the 80 and 100 hour yes, weeks. Yes, right, right. Whereas at Janelia, I mean, you know, I don't know whether this is a biologist thing or what, but anytime you're, you're in an environment that, that is that rich and that wealthy, there's a tendency to become complacent, right? Particularly if the goals are so far in the future, right? And so there's just not the same buzz or energy or, or, or feeling that, you know, we have to, we have to just go 110% now because God knows what's going to happen tomorrow, right? I mean, there's just a much more leisurely sort of... Weekends, you can see the difference. At Bell, oftentimes, you couldn't even tell whether it was Saturday or Wednesday, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so... Uh, well, I think partly it's probably, unfortunately, biologists have to uh, make a measurement more than once. <laughs> That's probably Good what gravy. You hit on something which has been so hard for me to accept. It's <laughs> that reproducibility and variability of the specimen. Ah, to a physicist, it's maddening. It's kind of like working back at the, uh, yeah. at the factory and making yeah. sure that the But to me, that's works. all the more reason that your ass should be in the lab more often. Right? Oh, it's true. Well, you, okay. always, it, you get to this point, though, where you, you, you know the answer, right? You solved it. Right. But you, you still need, need in the high end. Right, yes. right, right. And so you're just uh -huh. like, you yeah. just feel like a monkey, right? right. You're just going to sure. go in and pull sure. the lever. And, sure, sure, yeah. right. And I think to a degree, you know, I, th I think we should try to be smarter and this is one area where Janelia is really good, is, you know, although the groups are small, having the shared resources, right? So a lot of the rote work can be passed to, to techs who are happy doing that, are well paid for it, are valued for it. But, you know, I mean, after, after you've, you've done your, your cloned your 8,000th plasma, do you need to, to do 8,001 anymore? I mean, you know, it, it's, you know, it's not character building anymore. So, right. so, so uh, a lot of the rote stuff at Janelia you can outsource in one form or another, and that's, that's valuable, right? Um, but again, to me, that's all the more reason that, that you should be focusing on the creative stuff and, and just working really hard in order to do that. I'm not saying that people are lazy at Janelia. It's just, it's, it's just not the same environment that, that Bell was, you know, which was very, very high pressure and intense. And, and, and you had this camaraderie as a result of that, you know, so. Well, then the, uh, the kind of tipping, I guess, the main tipping point or one of the main tipping points at Bell Labs was the fact that you created this and then you didn't like the fact that everybody was essentially misusing it, you know, and, right. and not appreciating. Uh -huh. And at this point, you've invented a microscopy technique, which, uh, you know, the best thing about it, arguably, is that it is very approachable and, in a sense, simple enough that it, a lot of people can understand it. Right. Therefore, a lot of people are trying to use it, trying to right. tinker with it. Yes. I mean, do you feel like this is kind of all happening again? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get them to quit. <laughs> I, I came close. I came close. I mean, in 2008, I was pretty, you know, I gave up on super resolution in 2008. That was two years at, or three years after the start of, of the thing again, right? Because um, I, I said, I'm living the same bad nightmare all over again, okay? Standards of the field go into the toilet and people claim the moon. And, and uh, this is going to be the theme of the talk I'm going to give here at five. It's all about, you know... All, all the, all the sausage making within the sausage factory of super resolution, modern super resolution, and all the 
people are incredibly naive and are willing to accept at face value all sorts of stuff that's just nonsense. Uh, you know, I really feel that the Nobel Prize was premature. I think super resolution has had a modest impact on biology. I think it has the potential to have a big impact on biology. But um, I still think that the whole field is shaking itself out quite a bit. And it really hasn't, uh, the winners and losers in, t in the scientific sense. Nobel Committee has decided who's a winner and loser on that sense. But, but I think the real winners and losers are yet to be determined. So what's, I don't think they're going to be the same as the committee's choices. So what's kept you uh, going for another eight years? What's the next no-go? Yeah. And what's the next, what, what keeps you going <laughs> well, for another eight years? I'm not interested in prizes. I mean, prizes are toxic to academia. I wish you could get rid of them all. <laughs> and I seriously considered not accepting the Nobel. Um, in fact, when, when my wife heard that I won and I was in Germany, the first words that popped out of her mouth when her dad told me I won it was, did he decline it? Because <laughs> <laughs> so, you've turned yeah. down awards before. Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. It's, but they, they are toxic. I mean, they're subjective, you know. It's, it's a few people's opinion about things. But, you know, the <clears throat> working for awards is just dumb. I mean, you should, it's, it's the thrill of getting to your goals, you know, that's, that's the real reward. And it sounds hokey, but that's absolutely the truth. And, and, um, and the pain of being on the outside of those things far exceeds the pleasure of being on the inside of those things. So um, we'd just be better off without that, okay? Um, but um, the, where, where do I go from here? I mean, I, again, I like to focus on the problems of everything I do because I feel focusing on the problems instead of pushing them under the rug is, is exactly what you need to spark the creativity that's going to lead to the next step. So I felt like the limitations of super resolution led to my successes in light sheet microscopy and the stuff we've done there. And I, I really feel like this lattice light sheet microscope, which was honestly based theoretically on that damn idea with that the multifocal field yeah. that I tossed into the ash can. <laughs> I pulled it back out in 2008 and married it to light sheet microscopy, and then that's probably going to be the biggest success of my career Great. is that one. Um, but uh, again, you know, it just... Again, it just gets harder and harder to keep achieving success in a given field because you kind of, I feel like fields kind of go in spurts and then, you know, the, the ground loses nutrients and you got to let it lie fallow for a while. So I feel like I have a few years and then I got to figure out something radically different to do for a while, you know. So I don't know what, but I'll have to figure out something. That concludes that interview. That was really incredible, I think. Very awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, we're sorry about all of the photo clicking and the paper shuffling and all that stuff. And this, also, this the, was the second episode second yeah. that we recorded, actually. And we know nothing about what we're doing. Right. The first, the first one we recorded was Jeff Lickman. The second one we recorded uh, is Eric Betzig. These are both huge people. The second one we got is a Nobel Prize winner. And, and there. <laughs> And there we are pretending like we know that we doing. know what we're doing. We don't, we don't want to tell any of them how many episodes we have out because at this point it's zero and we're completely unprepared. Yeah. Um, and we still are. But Okay, I mean, so we're just Now we've got a little more We apologize. Experience. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, Eric Betzig is a he's, he's a... he's a unique individual because a lot of people don't really 
you don't f- find a lot of people talking about how the, f- they have limitations to. Yeah, I feel like a lot about. of people don't spend as much time talking about the problems. Yeah, the, fact, as much as like, Eric does. He he alluded to the talk that he was giving after this interview. That talk will I will remember that forever because it was basically an hour and forty five minutes of him dismantling all the stuff that led to the Nobel Prize in super resolution microscopy because his favorite thing now is is actually the lattice sheet microscope that he works with and he he considers that to be the biggest project of his career but the super resolution microscopy I think his takeaway from it is it's immature it wasn't ready and it's that's a, it's not a, it's a work in progress it's a work in progress that's not what deserved it and, and you I, don't, I love that attitude of, yeah, yeah you know he he takes uh he takes what he did and he thinks that everybody's just kind of blowing it out of proportion and uh and he gets obviously visibly frustrated about it you know yeah to i the think the point where he does something about it that's why he left science uh in the early 90s yeah no i i think that, that there's a great takeaway here right you know Hey, we should we shouldn't be focusing on the fads or what's cool and uh, and you know going for the hottest prize. Instead, we should follow Eric's advice. Working for awards is just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our show for this week. Thanks to our announcer Vered Kellner, our producers in the Office of Scientific Communications, and everyone else at the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience who helped make this happen. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NeuroPodcast. I'm at JW Science. Misha's at Salad Zombie, and Ben doesn't actually exist, or if he does, he's beyond the diffraction limit.